I'm just going to introduce you to John, our first speaker. Uh, if I can work out how to get into the slides. John has been working at um, SAP for 14 years or more, I believe, um, as an expert in information management technology and how to make the best use of your data by using technology. Thanks, John. Thanks, Paul. So, uh, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thank you to, uh, to Cam Little for the opportunity to speak to you this afternoon. Uh, it, it is a pleasure, and, uh, and actually, if I'm being quite candid with you, it's, it's slightly weird. Um, my normal audience would be uh, the, the IT representatives from, from an organization, potentially CIO, yeah, IT architects, and not necessarily yourselves who are involved in the, the, the legal aspects of, of data. So, what I will we'll try very hard to do is to is to tailor my, my presentation. And what I'd like to do is to go through how SAP sees the, the data challenge and, and to give you a little bit of a view on what we, we provide as uh, information management and information governance to our customer base um, to help them deal with, with that challenge. But let the, uh, the techno babble start, perhaps. Um, it's an interesting time. Um, and, and actually, things are moving very quickly right now. Um, Systems are, are moving from traditional hosted systems out into the cloud. Our customers are asking us, they're saying, we, for purposes of agility and, and cost savings, we'd like to move these core systems, enterprise business systems, that hold key data out into the cloud somewhere and potentially be in a situation where, where our customers are not even sure where, the, where those systems are running. So that's one trend that we're seeing. Another trend is, is the point of consumption. The point of consumption of key data, key applications, um, is moving from within the office to, to the unwired, to people consuming business intelligence reports on, on iPads, to people interacting with sales systems using iPhones, et cetera. So that really also brings its own challenges. And, and we are, are bringing out solutions to enable our customers to do that, because that's what, because that's what they want us to do. Um, but nevertheless, that's, that's a fast-moving aspect of of where data is residing. And, and increasingly, we're going to be seeing it residing also on, on mobile devices. And we need, to take, we need to take care of that. Something else we're seeing in, in the sustainability space is a real focus on sustainability, sustainable solutions. Um, and that, one of the impacts on data of that is that means that more data is being collected. So our organizations, organizations and, and all organizations are going to have to report on their carbon usage, for example. So that's more collection of data and data that needs to be reported out to, to the regulatory bodies in that case. And against all of this, there's also an, an expectation from, from people within, within organizations to be able to get access to data accurately and in real time. And essentially, that means there's, there's more data that's going to be available, huge amounts of data collected together in, in business intelligence reports, for example, are made using, using newer technologies and new approaches made much more accessible and instead of having to wait a few minutes of even, even a few um, seconds for a report, it's, it's instantaneous and instantly consumable. Great for the end users, great for the organizations to help them become more efficient, even more agile. Um, does deliver challenges in terms of the amount of data that's around and the security that we need to put in place on that data. So, <clears throat> what other trends are driving um, what organizations need to put in place to, to accurately control information man management. And I think I can, I can summarize it in this. There's an increased pressure on cost. There's, there's always that pressure. We deliver solutions to, to our customer base 
with the purpose of making them very efficient and, and effective to run. So in other words, best run, best run business. And so cost management is always a, a, a key aspect of this. In addition, there's an increased focus on, on compliance. And, and uh, that's all, that is always going to be the case. And in the markets, we're seeing within our customer base an increase in consolidation of companies themselves, of organizations. In other words, an increase in mergers and acquisitions. Um, and this brings um, its unique challenges. It brings a, a, new, a different set of processes that need to be combined, as well as different sets of data. And so what we need to do is, is, is have a, a, a platform, a solution, which enables customers to, to be able to cope with this kind of level of these drivers. So for, the, for the, the CIOs and for people involved in information governance, what are the top, top issues? The question there is, is how do I govern and manage my data? How do I stay compliant without incurring huge costs? Um, and how do I manage this complexity of, man, of having data all throughout the organization knowing where it is? How do I live up to these expectations of my business users and give them information to hand where they need it? and in delivering this data real time? And how do I implement and enforce the policies that I should have around, around information management? Okay, so what our approach to this is, is to say actually what we're gonna provide is, is a platform for information management. And I apologize for the, uh, the acronym soup on this slide, although actually having gone through the previous sessions, I was sitting there amidst my own acronym soup. But if you'd like me to explain, I will after the event. I'll be around. Um, but we provide, we provide business applications, enterprise applications, things to run HR, for example, things to run procurement, things to run um, pro, um, stock management, et cetera. Um, and we also, those applications will, will interact with data, both structured data, transactions, master data, and also unstructured data, things that are collected from the blogosphere things that uh, are collected from the website, et cetera, documents. Yeah. And what we provide to our customers is, is a way of managing that data as a platform. And the idea there is that we remove islands of data from the organization. Now, I would admit that, that, that our primary driver to doing that is going back to the reasons why we're, we're delivering enterprise solutions in the first place. That is, in order to keep business processes running effectively and to keep costs under control. So if, if, for example, you have a business process going across several different systems in an organization, then for that to run effectively, it's important that the, the master data is harmonized in some way, for example. But crucially, a side benefit to that is the fact that if an organization knows exactly where a piece of master data has gone throughout its systems, then it's able to much more effectively respond to the type of challenges that we've been seeing this afternoon that could come up as a part of a piece of litigation or, or as a part of an audit. So, so the primary focus for these solutions is, is to embed efficiency and promote business process um, effectiveness, but actually in doing so then, then um, good visibility of data and, and being able to respond to audits is a, is a good secondary point. <coughs> now, just to focus in a little bit on something we've, we've um, provided in, in recent times, and that's this, um, the, uh, the capability called information lifecycle management. Now what this is, is, is kind of like something that's it's moving from, from the old approach of where, where you're running an enterprise system, let's say it's HR or let's say it's a, the, the stock or finance system. 
there was a temptation for an organization to say, I'm just going to keep everything. I'm just going to keep all the information that this system ever produces. And yes, I'm going to archive it out of the live database, and I'm going to stick But um, back on. Fundamentally, I need to stop moving, maybe. Right, OK. <laughs> but fundamentally, there was a temptation for an organization to to say, actually, we're just going to keep everything forever. Um, it's the safest thing to do. Um, we need to keep this data. We need to re retain historical data. But actually, that, that brings with it its own risk. I think we're OK. Thank you. Um, that brings risk in that you may be becoming in breach of, of some uh, regulatory um, regulations, um, especially around data retention. And so, so what we've done is that we've recognized that, that organizations should, should not necessarily keep everything, but they should retain what is necessary, but also delete what, what should be deleted. Um, now, in doing that, there are, there are many, many different retention rules. I meant one of the previous talks talked about 800 um, plus regulatory rules on data retention. So what we've done is we've brought that logic closer to the application, closer to the business application where it can be configured, and they and give, give our customers a, an, an easy-to-use framework in order to implement that automatically. So that's kind of the example of, of, of where we're sort of bringing these types of solutions. Almost as a side benefit, um, it then also provides functionality to be able to respond effectively to things such as e-discovery requests and legal holds. So for, for, for customers, who, in particular in, in regulated industries such as the pharmaceuticals industry, then they may need to absolutely keep everything um, related to a particular product, for example. So this, these tools that we're delivering enables them to, to do so. <coughs> okay. Um, what's the uptake of this type of approach um, within our customer base? I would say looking at information management as a platform, then we've got a fairly good uptake of, of that. Organizations like to keep their data under control across their different systems and um, often use, use tools such as ours to, to do that and get in a good position where the processes are running very effectively. I think uptake of the information management lifecycle life management concepts is, is lagging a little bit. I think a lot of organizations are still in that mode where they are saying, we're just going to archive data and we're going to keep everything. Um, I've got one example here of a, of a global farmer who have looked at this and are starting on this journey of, of, of using ILM techniques. Um, their principal driver, they're doing a global consolidation. So they are um, consolidating operational systems from around the world into one single, one single global operational system. And, and in doing so, they're, they're having to satisfy all of the legal requirements and the retention rules of, of all of the markets which they're operating in, in in a single solution. And so they're, they're really hitting problems or hitting challenges of what to do with your historical data, what to do with data that's been migrated across from, from other systems into your, into your core business systems. The good news is, is that they, they're able to stay compliant. The outcomes of this is that they're saying, we can, we can do this, we can meet um, audit requirements, we can satisfy our data retention rules. And importantly for them, and importantly for, for acceptance of this, it's, it's also got a cost benefit as well. Um, so they can justify this um, using um, an argument of reducing hardware costs, et cetera, by decommissioning the other systems. And they've now adopted this as a strategic direction for, for their compliance globally. So um, to summarize, just to say, SAP is, we are very cognizant of the fact that you know, information management is a challenge. 
and it is, it is something that is going to become increasingly a focus as, as systems move out into the cloud and as, and as the users move out and become, move out of the office. Um, we have solutions there. We're, we're continuing developing those solutions. We'd, we'd like to engage with yourselves, so please contact if, um, us if you want to have that conversation and how we can develop solutions and, and meet your kind of requirements. So, and I'm going to hand back to Paul. Thank you. Seems like I've already messed up the technology, John. Um, if we go and hand the over to Lloyd, any ideas how to? Thank you. John, um, it's really good to sort of look at the trends in technology that are underpinning everything we're talking about today. Um, what we're going to do now is try and summarise and bring together all of the themes that we've heard this morning. Um, in 15 minutes, which should be a bit of a challenge. Um, and then Charlie's going to talk to you about um, issues in the corporate world. And then lastly, we're going to go on to a data loss and look at an example of what actually happens in reality when a business loses um, a large amount of valuable data. So first off, you know, why are we here? Well, information is becoming an increasingly important asset in almost every single business sector you can think of. Um, if you look at the right paper we've written in, uh, on data, for example, I think in the financial services industry it's worth something like $25 billion a year estimated. That's just one industry. There are plenty of other sectors. Also, technology has got to the point where effectively it can do pretty much what we want it to do. We're not struggling um, to find functionality now. It's able to do what we like. Um, and it's revolutionized our ability to access, create, store, search, and communicate information. A classic example I would already use is I've got a USB stick on me. Now, if I wanted to leave a, a business uh, 10 years ago and take data from that business with me, I might have had to sort of come on the weekend, take out a whole load of files, put them into uh, a lorry and drive away. Now I can do it in seconds on a USB stick and walk out of the door. We've seen a lot of that in the last couple of years. So the battle now is actually to control and exploit information to its best effect, that double-handed sword. And I would argue that our ability to, to manage the information that flows through our networks and systems is actually in its infancy and is lagging way behind technological development. It's becoming more apparent every day. How do we know this? Well, excuse me for the slightly clumsy slide, but I don't really understand terabytes, um, and so we've come up with something called the British Library. Now, this is an estimate for the amount of information stored digitally worldwide. I don't know how you estimate that, but people have. And this is roughly what the graph looks like. It's not quite exponential, so I have exaggerated it a little bit. But as you can see, in 2006, there were estimated to be 38, uh, 38 um, million, sorry, 38,000 British libraries. In 2011, 413,000. In 2015, two and a half million British libraries available digitally online. What does that mean? Well, it means that the average business is increasing the amount of information it stores year on year by 60%. That costs money and it has risk. Here's an example of the risk. Paul O'Hare took you through one this morning, but the truth is I've been doing these talks for about 10 years now. And when I first started, I used to struggle to find examples of data loss that were in the paper. Now, frankly, you can look back over the last week and find them. And so why does this happen? Well, I think as John highlighted before, a lot of businesses by default just keep everything because they don't want to lose things. And often when we do an information management strategy legal review, these are the kind of excuses we hear. Well, we don't want to lose anything. Actually, it's quite difficult for us to filter things. It's just easier to keep everything. I was trying to find an analogy for why I think that's a bad idea, and luckily the medical world gives us one. 
It's called pathological hoarding disorder. <laughs> the acquisition of and failure to discard possessions that are useless or of limited value due to a fear of losing things perceived to be important. I can't tell you how many times it comes up in things like subject access requests, where you'll find that someone wants information on them. You've got 50 years' worth of information stored in an individual. How much is it useful? Maybe 1%. You know, if you look at your email boxes, sometimes, so for example, if I'm going to a meeting, I might send an email to a user group with 50 people on it. The average system will keep 150 records of that information, three for every email I've got and three for everybody that's received one. You know, the fact that I'm going to be late for a meeting is useful for, what, five minutes maybe, ten minutes, and yet often that information is kept potentially for a long time, if not forever. So in fact, and this is not my room for those of you from Kemp Little who are worrying, um, but you know, the average IT system is storing some useful things. We've got some files here, but also a lot of stuff that it doesn't need to keep. It's of no use to anyone, and in fact carries risks associated with it. So the truth is, the reason why we're all here today and talking about this as one conjoined subject is effectively technology means that information is increasingly available and accessible. We can do more things with it. It's of increasing value. But on the other hand, we're seeing an increasing number of number of data losses all of the time, and actually the value and the risk of this data being lost is increasing all of the time. The media are becoming more aware of it. And finally, we're seeing regulators, lawyers, um, and litigators catching up with that fact. You know, how long before we see a group claim against someone who's lost 10,000 people's data? And how big could that claim be? Well, the, the gentleman before was saying 30 million. Maybe that's right at the moment, but I can guarantee in 10 years' time it will be more than that, maybe double. So. As lawyers, when we're trying to talk to our clients and explain to them what laws apply to information, very handily, it, there's not something called the Information Management Act. As you can well see from this morning, you've got to look, and this is only a minor example, my PowerPoint skills weren't good enough to include all of the different laws. There's a whole myriad of laws that are relevant. So how on earth do you explain that to a client? Well, I would argue here's, a, here's one way of doing it. You look at the impact of the laws. So we have things that tell us we need to keep things, security and confidentiality obligations. We have things that tell us we have to store them and keep them. We have rights that enable us to exploit information, and we have limits on the amount that we can exploit that information. People have access to information, and we know that. And then also there's third-party dealing, so whenever you're dealing with third parties, you need to regulate that. What do I mean? Well, to run through very briefly what we talked about this morning, as Richard said, common law confidentiality. You can have a right in confidence whether or not there's a contract. Secondly, in a contract, you have to probably set standards of confidentiality. Thirdly, as Callum was talking about last, in the Data Protection Act, we um, have to have applicable security standards for our information. You know, what does appropriate technical and organizational measures mean? We're beginning to find out in more detail, but it's obviously a moving feast, um, and there are standards that can apply to it. And lastly, we have regulators. So, you know, for example, Principle 3, which is a nice generic regulation. What it's really telling you is you've got to keep things secure and confidential within those boundaries. Secondly, what can and must be stored? As um, John was just saying now, there are over 800 specific requirements to keep things for certain periods of time. There's a couple of examples up there found in a myriad of different acts. For those of you that don't know, there's a very helpful red book which lists them all regularly each year. Um, and what does the Data Protection Act say? Well, again, as Callum was talking about, we've got to process that fairly and lawfully. What we keep has got to be adequate and not excessive. It's got to be accurate and up-to-date and not kept for longer than necessary. In other words, there are limits to what we can keep and what we must keep things for. Thirdly, we were talking about IPRs this morning and the fact that actually they're very useful but very confusing rights and you can control exploitation of information via contract. Um, you know, we can exploit information and make money out of it. Increasingly, the value of data is going up all of the time and more people are monetizing it and, make, and making cash out of it. 
From a data protection angle, however, we have to be very careful when we've got customer information that we use it fairly and lawfully. We've got applicable consents, particularly in the advertising context. Um, and we need to put in place measures to ensure that it's kept safely and used under contract. And competition law, again, as we were told this morning, if you're a dominance right holder, you may not be able to refuse to supply that information to people. You may even have limits on the prices you can charge for that information. Fourthly, who has a right to access that data? Well, confidentiality and contract will tell us. The Data Protection Act will tell us. We want to send it outside the EEA. We may have to put in place applicable procedures, and maybe limits on the use we can put it to. Subject access requests. Anybody who's got personal data can ask us to give it to them, and we have to provide it to them. Litigation, even if there's a duty to provide, even if it's detrimental, which again brings into question, should we keep anything and everything on our systems? I've often seen, for example, personal claims that a company then has to provide information about an employee because it's relevant to a claim that's completely irrelevant to the business. Um, for example, a gentleman who was having an affair and there was information recorded on the email system of the company. Against company policy, it was also recorded on his voicemails. Um, he worked for a financial services regulated business. And the other people relevant to the, the claim, the divorce claim, actually applied for that data to be released. The company had to spend a lot of time thinking about whether it could provide it. Um, it shouldn't have been kept, but it was because he did personal calls and his business email. It's, it's not an easy thing. And from a regulatory point of view, a regulators, competition authorities, FSA, can get access to information and you have to provide it. Um, and furthermore, in Competition Act, as we heard this morning, in, re in some circumstances, you can compel a data holder to license data, and it must do so in reasonable terms. And fifthly, when we deal with third parties, first of all, we've got to take account of all of those four things that I was talking about before, and then we have to look at them in the context of the third party. So with an employee, you, know, you have to manage their data in compliance with employment law. You therefore have to put things in their employment contract and handbook and policies that explain what you do and how you manage that information. Conversely, when they're managing your information, you need clear contracts and policies to tell them what they can and can't do with your information and on what mediums. Then with customers, we have a customer contract that tells us what, what we can, customers, what we can do with their data. The more clear the contract, the more clear the uses that we, we get the information for, the more we can use it for, the more valuable it is. Secondly, um, and conversely, with company data, if you're licensing data to customers, you've got to limit exactly what they can and can't do with it. Then we've got intergroups, as Callum was talking about in much more detail before. How can you pass the information within your group? How can you make most use of it? And lastly, third parties, as Paula Hare was talking about this morning. Um, you know, who will own the rights in the data if, if, if third parties creating it for you? How do you comply with DPA if you're sending information to an outsourcer in, in South Africa? Who's liable for what? And how can you control your data in all circumstances? So that was a very quick run through of why I think we're all here today, really, which is actually we need to have an information management strategy. Almost every business needs to look at what data it's got, what's valuable, what's not, work out how to keep it. Identify what to keep, keep it securely, delete the rest, and therefore increase your compliance and business efficiency, reduce risk and cost, and ensure that all of your contracts and policies reflect this accurately. So what, what's our role as lawyers in all of this? Well, effectively, there isn't a silver bullet solution. There's a lot of judgment calls to be made. You need a multifaceted approach. Yes, there are contractual and legal frameworks, but actually IT and security solutions can be just as valuable. For example, there's some software that can remotely delete what's on a BlackBerry. It's, it's quite cheap. That can immediately reduce the risk of having lost a BlackBerry. If you haven't got it, you have to think whether it's adequate not to have thought about getting it or not to have it. There's lots of software now that can really help. And also, you need practical policies and procedures so that people actually understand what they can and can't do with the data from the employment context, as we were talking about before, that will protect you. If you're doing an information management project, you must set a clear objective. 
you know, am I trying to commercialize the data? Am I looking to ensure that I'm compliant with privacy and retention rules? Or do I want to reduce my compliance risk? Identify clear deliverables, because otherwise you will have project scope, project, project, sorry, project scope creep. Um, it's almost inevitable, because the moment you start opening up a system to look at information within it, you'll realize that you use it probably in far more context than you'd actually known in the first place. Secondly, you've got to ensure this results in practical implementation, training and updates and procedures. There's no point in having the most well thought through contract, as Paula Hare was highlighting before, if in practical terms you've done nothing to enforce it. And then you've got to allocate sufficient resources. Don't underestimate the task. It, it tends to be all pervasive. So what are the sort of process tips and guidelines we suggest? Well, first of all, having flowcharts showing where data goes, what's done with it, who it goes to, what's in it and how important it is, is invaluable for lawyers. You can ask your business teams to help produce flowcharts, and you can look at them and update them as you go along. It helps you understand where the information's going. Secondly, if you're doing an audit, look at the ICO guidelines. They're quite helpful. Um, thirdly, think about security standards. We've got ISO BS 27001, um, which actually has requirements for the level of documentation you must keep when doing an audit uh, and when implementing an information security management system. So please take account of it. And BS 10012. It, it will help you prove that you've tried to comply with the Data Protection Act. So what are the legal outputs? Effectively, look at all of your terms and conditions. Almost all of them will have data flowing in one way or another to somebody. Make sure that all of those are dealt, dealt with contractually as best as possible. And also implement policies. So you know, have an IPR policy for what is done when you contract with a new supplier to create some software. Um, an employee and HR policy, you know, what can the employee do with your data? What can't they do? What systems can they use? What can't they use? Um, it will really help you in the event of a, of a claim. Um, also have document retention and storage policies. That way you can try and implement them. Hopefully the technology solutions are now getting to the point where actually if you implement the parameters, you can actually get the software to, to do the work for you, to get rid of documents when it should get rid of them. And also have a privacy policy and pri privacy notices out for your customers. And why is it important to have policies? I can't emphasize this enough, really, but it makes it an employee or a third-party issue. As we'll hear when Andrew talks about it later, if you have a data loss, it can really help you. You have written documents that, first of all, reduce the risk of there being a breach in the first place, because hopefully everybody's been aware of what they can and can't do and trained in it. They're provided to all third parties, including your subcontractors, your outsourcers. If we're part of the contracts, so it'd be a breach of the contract if they've not um, complied with them. And you can update these policies as you go along. It reduces the practical risk of a leak occurring. It increases the chances of compliance with law and regulation, and it will reduce your liability and also potentially your PR damage. So having said that, I'll move on to hand over to Charlie to talk about M&A. Thank you for that, Paul. Um, I'm just going to say uh, a few words about information management with a corporate flavour here. Um, Information management, as well as being an important part of managing and running a business, as we've heard earlier this afternoon, is an increasingly important part of the diligence process on an acquisition. Uh, many of the reasons for this have already been explored, uh, but there are some issues that are relatively unique to an acquisition situation. These include that um, the seller is going to be providing data to the buyer, the buyer is going to be relying and using that data to verify the purchase price and such things as synergies between the business, uh, customer overlaps. Therefore, if uh, poor quality data is provided 
or alternatively no data can be provided, this can at the least significantly delay closing of an acquisition. And I have seen uh, some recent instances of that. Um, also, um, information management and data quality are a very important part of planning the integration of a business once you've, once you've bought it. Uh, poor information management and data quality can significantly delay integration and that can mean that you lose some of the benefits of the acquisition. Now, uh, where a buyer does see that there's uh, poor data quality or information management and it's going to need to spend a significant amount to remediate this, we are seeing instances of buyers asking for a purchase price reduction. Uh, the main reason for this is it's very difficult uh, to claim uh, for information management issues under a sale and purchase agreement. And I can uh, discuss the, the reasons for that with you uh, later on if you'd like that. Uh, another important point for a, for a buyer is that um, having a good information management policy and good practices and ensuring that those practices are followed means that if when you buy a business, uh, key employees leave, as often happens, and those key employees are responsible for information management, you don't have any business continuity issues. Uh, a, a point for a, a seller here, um, one, one thing we've, we've definitely seen from acting for buyers of business, businesses is that if there's poor information management and poor data quality, this creates a significant fear factor within some buyers about actually buying a business. They'll be concerned about how will they deal with claims that arose once the business has been bought, so for instance, uh, any competition issues and they'll be concerned about compliance generally and about the actual risk of uh, regulatory and other legal infractions. Finally, um, from the seller's perspective, I would say that having a good information management policy and practices and systems really does assist you in uh, preparing any data and diligence materials required by a buyer. Uh, not having these systems and processes in place means that a considerable amount of management time can be spent actually just um, obtaining documents and data. Um, I think that's all from me at the moment, so I'll hand over to Andrew. Thanks, Johnny. So um, if this was the London Marathon, you'd have just hit the mile, so you're nearly there. Um, what I was going to talk to you about is, well, I very boldly, when we were writing these sort of invites to this, I was going to talk about how to best manage risk and reputation in an unintentional data loss. How to best manage is probably a pretty uh, arrogant statement because there are so many moving parts of what we've just spent the last three or four hours talking about, about umpteen bits of law, technical issues, IPRs, how businesses operate, that actually best practice is really, really hard to define. So I think what I'd rather do is probably talk to you um, about a case I went through in the last three years about an unintentional data loss incident and talk about a lot of the things we've been talking about this afternoon, IPRs, laws, breaches of contract, etc and how we approach that, and uh, how the business I was acting for approached that, what we think were the benefits of doing it the way we did, maybe some of the lessons learned, and hopefully that's useful to you as businesses out there. So if data's lost for whatever reason, what are the potential impacts? Well, statutory, regulatory beach, uh, ICO fines up to half a million pounds, FSA deciding to open the completely blank checkbooks. What else are there? There's third-party contract breaches with your suppliers or your customers. Perhaps you breach duties of confidentiality, reasonable skill and care, warranties, 
perhaps uh, contractual DPA obligations or security policies you've signed up to. They're all liabilities you're opening yourselves up to. Potentially, you've got employer-employee duties breached when you're talking about information relating to employees. Um, you know, the general employment duties of mutual trust and confidence or perhaps a duty of confidentiality within your employment contract with them or just imposed by common law. Then, of course, you've got your reputation and goodwill being damaged and the cost of any remedial work post-event. They're all the things that an unintentional, probably an intentional data loss incident is going to open you up as a business. So what do we think about how that's going to cost us? You know, John's really rightly said, actually, is... And John Manning said, in my business, Prudential, I'm starting to think what that might cost me if I lose a million customer records, and I think that's at least £30 million. Well, in uh, 2000, January 2010 is the most recent data we've got in terms of um, independent research body, Poneman, looking at the cost across a few different territories of data loss incidents. Um, so this, this, is, this relates to 2009 incidents reported January 2010, and they've, they've not reported yet on last year. What they did is they looked at 25 private sector organisations, eight public sector organisations, all of whom had data loss incidents of between 5,000, 6,000 up to 62,000 uh, personal, sorry, separate, 62,000 separate bits of data relating to individuals. And what they did is they looked at those and said, so how much is it costing you? How much has that incident cost you businesses? I think the numbers are really quite surprising. If you look at, um, in particular in the US, the cost of things such as lost business, I think that's a very hard one for people to quantify and understand, and that's probably the most unknown of all those columns. But it is going to cost you business. Depending on what your business is, it might depend on how much people and customers are put off using you because you seem to lose um, customer data and other sorts of information. But that kind of data loss is always going to harm goodwill, reputation in the marketplace, and might well cost you contracts. Ex post response, the sort of remedial actions we're going to be looking at is what, you know, what my client was looking at a couple of years ago. They are significant having to put in place things to basically close the stable door after the horse is bolted. And what this sort of information is saying, well, it's saying that US is expensive if it happens over there. It's saying, actually, if you look, Germany is very expensive in terms of detection and escalation. And those of you who know data protection law will know that Germany probably enforces the, Europe the data protection directive a little more strictly than it's done in the UK and other states. But the UK, it's generally the average incident between those sort of companies is costing those businesses a, a, a large-scale data loss of over 6,000 bits of information in 2009. In the UK, average costing about $2.6 million, about £1.7 million, roughly estimated at about £64 per record that was lost. So how does that lead? That leads into the case study I want to talk about. So this is based on factual events. I've changed the name to protect the not-so-innocent. Um, but I was looking, working for a company, XYZ PLC. They had an employee. He was middle management. He wasn't senior management, but he wasn't just uh, the photocopy boy either. And he was in charge uh, and involved in an HR role in particular. Now, he uh, left his laptop on a luggage carousel. He was employed by the UK arm of the business and worked in the UK. Um, but he left it in, a, in an airport within Europe. Um, on that laptop were 10,000 employees' personal details saved to the hard drive. The laptop was password protected, but it didn't have any encryption devices on it. Um, it was obviously personal data, some of it's sensitive personal data under the definitions under the DPA. Um, and this was a business which uh, was a UK affiliate, but had, it was a global entity and had businesses all over the world. Um, and the key things to really know is also that not just was it personal data and therefore the Data Protection Act applied, but um, the ICO have made a formal view in the last couple of years that actually they, they say, in their own words, will consider regulatory action if uh, personal data is on laptops which have only password protection and non-encryption placed upon them. 
So that's kind of the backdrop to the incident happening. What happened? How did the business react? Well, the loss was identified within 48 hours. They notified the ICO. They told them about it. They notified the employees who had been affected. They issued press releases. They gave an undertaking to the ICO. And also, they undertook a fair amount of remedial work. They had the steps that throughout the course, and this played out across the course of about 12 months. But uh, these are the steps which they undertook. And each of, at each of these steps, they made a conscious decision to do something for certain reasons, and certain reasons you might agree, you might disagree with, but we can walk through. So the first one was that they, they identified the loss to the senior management within 48 hours. And that happened because actually they had the processes and procedures in place. Um, someone could recognize something had been stolen, that's fair enough, but something quite important had been stolen, which was beyond just having lost a laptop. It was losing a laptop with a fair amount of really important data on it. And the procedures were in place that the employee knew that he probably had to identify, and he probably had to notify his manager pretty quickly and say, it's not just a laptop, you'll never guess what was on it. And, and also his manager knew that that had to be escalated very quickly to legal departments um, and the CIOs and other stakeholders within that business. I think that's the first important thing that they had in place beyond, before even I got involved or anyone else got involved, that was in place as a business operating. And what would have happened if that hadn't been in place? Well, I think the first thing to question really is whether the data protection principle number seven uh, would have actually probably been in breach right at that first instance because did they have appropriate technical and organisational measures to um, protect against unlawful processing, accidental loss, etc. Because I think part of those organisational measures isn't just about stopping things being stolen. That is going to happen. It's about mitigating and minimising loss whenever that happens. Again, with some of their employer duties to those employees about confidentiality and using the skills and cares and mutual trust and confidence, etc., have been breached if they didn't have ability to find out it had happened quite quickly. And there are other obligations potentially under contracts they had with third parties about confidence and security also being breached. The second thing they did was that they notified the ICO and their employees. So as Callum talked about earlier, there isn't a duty under the Data Protection Act to notify the ICO if you've got a breach of that act at yet. They want it, but it isn't in place yet. Um, what they have got is pretty strong guidance, though, and they've said uh, in the middle of last year they updated their guidance. Um, this was actually post my event, but actually they said there's no obligation to notify the ICO, but if, the, if uh, there are some serious breaches, they should be brought to the attention of the officer, and the rule of thumb is generally if there's information on a 1,000 or more individuals on an unencrypted laptop, uh, when some of that is personal data which identifies, for example, names and NI numbers, then that should be brought to our attention and notified to us. So we tick that box very quickly. Other examples are saying, actually, it doesn't need to be a 1,000. If it's only 50 people, but it's incredibly sensitive information, you know, all their financial records, that should be notified to us. So we probably tick both of those boxes. Um, so they decided, XYZ PLC decided to uh, notify the ICO and say, you know what, we've had a breach and we think probably potentially a breach of the Act. Um, the, part, the, pr the pros are, well, hopefully you're going to get a more positive reaction from the ICO. They've said they are going to take into consideration that notification when they're thinking about remedial measures and the sort of punishments is the wrong word, but uh, the, the fines, etc., they're going to put in place. In criminal, you know, criminal law parlance, they're going to take credit for a guilty plea, basically. Um, I mean, the cons of obviously doing that is, well, the query, would they have ever known? Um, and, and really, I suppose in this example, we were talking about a large-scale data loss across a large employee base. It was considered by XYZ that actually they thought the information might well and probably would get into the public domain. Um, so it's better to be proactive about it because the cons of not doing so, well, if you don't notify anyone, maybe they won't know and you avoid publicity. 
But if the ICO find out afterwards, then you have to be in a worse position in terms of negotiating your undertaking and your remedial action with them. And we'll come on to those kind of discussions. They also decide to obviously uh, notify the employees of the loss. You know, now that is of, that's part of the ICO guidance about what goes on when you lose information. But also actually just generally good practice to help thinking about mitigating losses. Because actually employees might think they start to have a contractual claim against you for you know, breach of your employment contract for having that information in the domain. Well, telling them the information is out there saying, please, can you be aware on your statements about fraudulent activity? And also, here is an Experian account for the next six months for all 10,000 of you to keep an eye on this. Helps make sure that they can, you can run a very strong mitigation of loss argument in the first place. It's good practice. It looks like a sensible grown-up business as well. Um, and actually, if we didn't do it, then again, the potential PR disaster of saying, well, we kept this silent and suddenly five of you have said you had your whole accounts being fleeced would look disastrous. Would look very poor, I think, in most grown-up businesses. Press release. Well, again, realize that actually if you're going to start dealing with the ICO, things are going to get into the public domain. So let's have some preparation in terms of anticipatory strike material, things ready to go when we know things are going to hit the public domain. Uh, because it looks coordinated, it means we can understand how best to mitigate poor relations and how this is going to look in the press, how to give the most positive view. Um, and because if you're not planning for dealing with things getting into public domain and if you're, of, you're working in an industry, for example, at the moment if you're working in financial services, you are fair game to everybody in the press, whatever you do, it'll be someone else's turn soon enough. It'll be retail's turn soon enough. You know, if these things are getting and you're having to be reactive in the press to these kinds of events, then it was decided, X, Y, Z decided, actually that's going to look really bad. Let's get on the case now. Some of the lessons learned in relation to the ICO undertaking, well, I think that one of the key things in that was um, I noticed a real difference in approach with dealing with the ICO from five years ago to maybe two and a half, three years ago and to dealing with them now because they were a lot more uh, open to discussions about the sort of uh, requirements they would have in terms of would they need undertakings, would they need just to send strongly worded letters, would they be looking for any remedial measures. Um, and actually it's quite hard I think to avoid if you're in significant data breach now having to give an undertaking. Um, it, they, they, it's, it's, it's an incredibly hard thing to, to avoid, and I think that's why you see more and more of them. If you go to the website, the number of undertakings having to be given has risen exponentially in the last couple of years. That's partly to do with their role as a quasi-political organisation. They're part of government, but need to justify their appearance because there are other regulators out there who could potentially do their job, I think. Uh, and you notice that dealing, and you notice that coming through when you deal with them. What is the form of that undertaking? Well, it's a public document, and that's something that you have to be aware of if you're prepared to enter into one. It's on the website. It's published. It comes with an accompanying press release from the ICO. Um, it, it's something that the journalists are out there scouring the releases um, to see exactly what the ICO is saying and looking for. And, they are, and obviously, the ICO as an organization want to talk about what they are doing. So that is a public document that I'm undertaking. Uh, and it takes the forms of a finding, the findings of the remedial action, sorry, the findings of the breach, description of what's gone on and then obviously the remedial action they're looking to put in place and that ICA undertaking we'll go into some detail uh, uh, about the the, the, um, the technical organization and other measures that they're expecting to see put in place to ensure compliance within the UK for the business that's in breach and they have found in breach of the Data Protection Act but as a global business that's like to have a knock-on effect to how you approach all the remedial measures and the remedial action they look for and the lessons learned, I think, on that really is break into two parts. And I think the most fundamentally important one, uh, looking back at what happened in this case, was about the policies that were in place. 
Because, as I say, I think the regulator is pretty honest to say this, it's not a situation that breaches and losses of data and misuse of data will never happen because there are accidents happen uh, and there are thieves and criminals out there all the time. Um, but in this case, there was a couple of fatal flaws, one of which was that a laptop wasn't encrypted. And actually, by you know, a couple of years ago, encryption is not an expensive thing on a laptop, and it might have been six or seven years ago, but it's not acceptable anymore. And secondly, your policies in terms of the business didn't tell this individual in enough detail that they shouldn't, uh, they didn't tell them in enough detail that they shouldn't have this information stored absolutely in this way on their laptop. And so this defective and, this defective and slightly um, incorrect policy was fundamental in the ICA finding that there had been a DPA breach. It wasn't the stealing laptop, stolen laptop which was the issue. It was the fact that the policy hadn't said that this information shouldn't be on the laptop. The cost of rectification of a policy is minimal you know, in real terms. And the numbers we're about to have a look at, the cost of rectification is a few hours of a lawyer's time, a couple of bits more of an IT and technical person's time to check it works. The technical rectifications, when you've not done something like encryption, and you've then got to go and look at your entire remote device estate of 28,000 bits and pieces of Blackberries, iPhones, uh, laptops, etc. And some of those which are planted throughout middle of Russia, etc., etc. Because as a business, you realize that's the only way you're going to comply with this undertaking. The technical cost of that can be absolutely substantial because you're rolling out an IT solution basically without any forward planning about bolting it onto just something at the end. And that's not the, that's not the, uh, the most cost-efficient way to sort of integrate an encryption program with your hardware, just by having to bolt it on. So actually, we can start looking at the cost comparison. So we've looked at the overall and average costs of some of the events we've talked about. This is a cost comparison, very rough figures for a 10,000 uh, data loss incident in the UK, and kind of the cost because of the actions we took and the cost potentially if we're taking the different forms of action. So was there a process in place to identify the issue in 48 hours? There was. Um, that probably cost a few thousand pounds worth of um, uh, management consultant time, a bit of legal time to look at the policy to make sure everyone was happy, a bit of HR time to make sure that actually it fitted in all the other HR policies. But a fairly small number. If I hadn't got that in place, it'd cost me nothing. The notifi notification cost to the ICO, again, that's a pretty small number. Really, it doesn't cost very much to write them a letter. You're going to take some legal advice. You're going to look about the cost of taking, making sure I'm explaining it properly. But there's, there's little cost if you don't notify the ICA. It doesn't cost you anything. Notifying your employees, again, there's some admin resource time. Actually having to get in touch and make sure 10,000 people know about what's gone on in the best possible way. But also provide them with the Experian credit checking agency account for six months to make sure they keep on top of it. Yeah, that starts to become a substantial cost. You know, 10, 15, 20 pounds for six months' time, 10,000 is quite an expensive cost. And if you don't do that, obviously you're saving all this money. Press release, again, getting your, getting your, you know, your marketing and your PR department involved. There's some resource time there. Put a quasi number against that. Maybe a few hours of their time across the team, making sure there's a coordinating marketing campaign. And, and give it, so there, at the moment, uh, the differences in the approach as well. Actually, Andrew, what the hell did you advise them to do? Because you've just, got, you've just cost them £130,000, and actually if they'd followed some of the toilet options, it's cost them nothing. Um, and I think this is where the speed differentials start to come into play, because the ICA undertaking, you know, entering into the undertaking, a bit of negotiation, uh, but that's the great thing, actually, if you've notified and potentially kept inside the rules of what the DPA and the guidelines are saying, you have an opportunity to have a dialogue with them and start talking about what the ICA undertaking looks like, um, I think what they've said is they're really not interested in those people who suddenly come cap in hand having been found out 
um, their approach to you then is going to be substantially different. There will be no credit for you, no guilty plea if you, don't have, if you haven't given one. And what you're looking at now since April last year is the £500,000 fine potentially because we've already seen those fines hit a level of £1,000 for data loss events which were in one case quite serious, I think, a child abuse fax going to the wrong place. You know, but this is you know, substantial data losses of 10,000 people's financial details are really quite significant in ICOIs. The cost of the remedial work, well, the remedial work we were able to negotiate, which was required by the ICO, and as I said, you're able to negotiate that because they're prepared to have a dialogue with you, is looking at about £9 million to roll out encryption across the board, to update policies across the board, making sure people fully understand that every remote device out there, et cetera, for this business with 28,000 different devices. Well, I can guarantee you that that remedial work, if the ICO find out, and they're going to find out with this kind of data loss event, that remedial work is going to be £9 million times their annoyance. It's going to be more than that. And I think that means that actually before we even look at reputational damage, and I won't even put a figure on that because I think you can't classify reputational damage, although people have tried to do that. Um, that figure of all these other costs start to mean that actually if you're starting to really put in place dealing with, and what we hoped is that you know, in dealing with it in this way, putting forward a strategy which actually looks and anal analyzes each of the aspects means you're starting to think about how to save money in that data loss event scenario. And as I said, then you're looking at reputational damage. It's a managed reputational damage, which has to look better than just digging your head in the stand and then being found out. So really, the last slide, the conclusion for today, is the slide Paul's already put up, and that's very deliberate, actually. It's the same messages we keep coming across again and again and again. Identify what to keep. Keep what you need securely and enable it to be exploited. And that's really important to us. It's not just about risk, risk, breach the law. It's also about making the most out of the data you've got in the best possible way. Is the database set up to exploit that database right if you can get it? You know, am I able to license it properly and people understand? Delete what isn't needed for the very good sort of practical reasons Paul came across. Increase compliance, business efficiency, reduce risk and cost. Has to be sensible. And really, and I would say this because I'm a lawyer, but then so are all of you. Ensure on contractual policy terms accurately reflect strategy. Having the contract, having the policy is one thing. Having the correct one is really the thing that makes the absolute difference.